for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your host for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Onion, green pepper, and celery are southern mirepoix. The place to start for many Louisiana dishes. The Holy Trinity also serves as a signpost, marking the path from Cajun and Creole Louisiana to California and beyond. I have the pleasure of being in conversation with Dr. Faustina Ducrosse. Faustina, talk to me about the last 150 years, about who has moved from Louisiana to the Bay Area and why. So the people who've been moving from Louisiana to the Bay Area have been part of the larger Great Migration out of the South. And they started coming really in the early 1900s. A large proportion were coming in the 1940s and 50s uh, around World War II and after that, um, and all the way through the 70s. You know, the other story you often hear when people talk about the Great Migration, whether it's to California or to the Midwest or wherever it may be, they frame it in terms of economic opportunity. And and that sounds to me like a cloak over a lot of different reasons, some of them not so simply dis- explained. Right. We often do hear about economic opportunity. But if we also think about who was coming during this time, it was largely a Black population escaping the South. They were leaving the racial terrorism that they were experiencing during that time in the Jim Crow era. Uh, They were experiencing segregation and other forms of uh, racial oppression. And so that economic piece is part of it, but it really stemmed from the racism that was being experienced by uh, these folks. Because lack of economic opportunity is its own form of racism. Yes, yes. Many people that I talked to uh, in my broader research of migrants who went to Los Angeles and the Bay Area, people had college degrees, but they weren't able to find employment that matched their education in the South, in Louisiana. And so California presented the potential for more opportunity, even though there were still you know, many forms of racism that they endured once they arrived. As I listen to you talk about the people you've interviewed, it compels me to ask, what stirred your interest in this topic in the first place? Well, my family uh, on my dad's side migrated from New Orleans to Los Angeles. And so that was always part of our family story. Uh, I knew in Los Angeles there was a pretty big population of Louisianans that my grandparents knew, uh, my dad grew up with. So that's what started my research Uh, in Los Angeles. And then when I moved up to the Bay Area, I thought that it would be great to extend the project because I also knew that there were plenty of folks who migrated to Northern California as well. And I had family members in my own family who had had chosen to go to, to the North instead of to Southern California.
At the start of the pandemic, I left my apartment in New Orleans to shelter in place near family in my hometown of Oakland, California. I left a stick of butter in the fridge, naively imagining I'd be back in around six weeks. Now a year has passed. Living in the pandemic is a lesson in rupture. There was before and there is after. I talked to Lee Wright about this feeling several months into the pandemic. She had just published a book called Local Life, about the complicated role of tourism in New Orleans. She spoke about the particular challenge of social distancing in a city where joyful moments are shared in large groups. You know, we don't live inside of our walls. None of us just come home and just sit there. Like, we actually like to be out in our city. When I left town, at first it felt like I had only replaced my four walls with another set. Spring passed, and we all missed Jazz Fest. Summer passed, and honestly, I did not miss the humidity. But I miss the food every day. I started looking around and realized that Oakland was a direct conduit to Louisiana cuisine. Here in downtown Oakland, there are at least four Louisiana-inspired restaurants open for takeout within walking distance. This wasn't exactly a surprise. Even as a kid, I had a feeling that Oakland and Louisiana were linked. When I was growing up, we used to drive by a Creole restaurant called TJ's Gingerbread House, a candy-colored vision in the shadow of the freeway. You know, giant gingerbread men um, with kind of intricate, ornate wood carvings all over the, the restaurant. That was Sean Dickerson. He's an archivist at the African American Museum and Library, which is an arm of the Oakland Public Library. The museum has collected TJ's memorabilia, including photographs, menus, and this TV ad. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to TJ's Gingerbread House. TJ's Gingerbread House was open from 1974 to 2007, and Sean says it was one of the only fine dining restaurants to serve Creole and Cajun food in the entire city during those three decades. Using the museum's archives, Sean pieced together the restaurant's origin story. TJ Robinson was born in 1935 in Bastrop, Louisiana. That's in the northeast part of the state, and far from New Orleans and Acadiana, though Robinson may have had relatives in South Louisiana. And growing up, her closest friend was her grandmother, Jenny Bailey. Her grandmother was a professional storyteller, and Robinson's favorite story to hear um, was her grandmother's version of the Hansel and Gretel story. Only in the grandmother's version, it was the gingerbread man who was the hero of the story. So when the Robinson family moves to the Oakland area, TJ is about 12. She brings with her this love of Creole cuisine, along with this story of the, of the gingerbread house. It took two years for TJ to build a house that lived up to her childhood imagination. It was obviously one of a kind, but the reason the museum has held on to so many materials from a shuttered restaurant speaks volumes about what TJ and her gingerbread house meant in Oakland. Robinson herself was quite lauded, uh, was awarded several local and national awards, including being named one of America's top black chefs in 1994. And then I think it's also interesting as the story of Robinson and her Cajun Creole cuisine, which she called Louisiana Fancy Fine, the kind of uniqueness of her vision as this destination, both for locals and tourists. And so there's a kind of living vitality to that story in the present that we think is inspiring. I was probably the ideal age, maybe nine or 10, when my dad first took me to TJ's Gingerbread House. I was completely captivated by the sugary dreamland Miss Robinson had manifested. But I didn't understand the technique that went into the dishes on the menu. 
jambalaya, gumbo, crawfish, and shrimp etouffee. Dishes like these are built on a base of finely chopped and sautéed onion, celery, and green bell pepper, known to Louisiana cooks as the Holy Trinity. Louisiana is famous for two cuisines, Cajun and Creole. Both draw on diverse influences, including West African, European, and indigenous foodways. Creole cuisine is most closely associated with the city of New Orleans. By contrast, you can think of Cajun as more country cooking. While these terms describe distinct cuisines, and they're not interchangeable, they do share ingredients and techniques from generations of proximity and exchange. The consensus is that the godfather of Cajun cooking, Chef Paul Prudhomme, popularized the term Holy Trinity. These three ingredients, or close variants, have been part of Louisiana foodways for at least 250 years. Chef John Fulce has traced the Holy Trinity back to the year 1775 through historic recipes and agricultural studies. Immigrants from Germany and Italy brought celery to Louisiana in the late 1700s. Chef Mitch Rosenthal owns a Cajun-influenced restaurant called Town Hall in San Francisco. He learned about the Holy Trinity when he was staging with Prudhomme in the 1980s. The Holy Trinity, which is in the basis of like gumbos, etouffees, jambalayas, right? Celery, onion, peppers. For him, it was about really getting the most out of each of those things. Like, the thing about that type of cooking that I like is you're married to it. Like, it's long time cooking, right? And it's not just like putting wine in with some shallots and a reduction and then adding demi. It's like you're standing over it, right? Because those onions are going to burn on you. And the order that you put things in and that, and each layer being caramelized and building flavor, building flavor. In 1981, as Prudhomme's cooking gained national fame, a New York Times article described the onion, celery, bell pepper trio as the holy trinity of Creole cooking. But the late great chef Leah Chase insisted the Holy Trinity belonged to the Cajun tradition because the Creole cook she knew didn't regularly use celery. If the Holy Trinity was a Cajun invention, Creole cooking fully adopted it for jambalaya, gumbo, and etouffee. Virtually every cuisine has its own aromatic flavor base. France has mirepoix, which uses carrot rather than bell pepper. In West Africa, it's atalilo, usually bell peppers, scotch bonnet chilies, tomatoes, and onions. The list goes on. Brett Anderson is a New Orleans-based food correspondent for the New York Times. Brett compiled an oral history about Paul Prudhomme, and he found that when it comes to the Holy Trinity, the way Prudhomme sourced his ingredients was often just as important as the way he used them. You know, when you look back to what Prudhomme did, he was doing in the South some of the same things that Alice Waters was doing out West in terms of buying from local farmers, never using frozen ingredients, only using local ingredients, the kinds of things that he just grew up on because he grew up on a farm. Farm to table cooking is a strong through line between Louisiana cuisine and the slow food movement in the Bay Area. Like most food diasporas, the recipes that arrived in Oakland transformed based on regional ingredients. At a spot called Louisiana Fish and Chips, the addition of Pacific Dungeness crab renders their gumbo more complex. Louisiana Fish and Chips has only been in Oakland for a decade or so, but something told me the Creole and Cajun diasporas reached the Bay Area much earlier. 
Historical migration data backs this theory up. As part of the Great Migration of African Americans from southern states, over 100,000 Louisianans migrated to the Bay Area between 1940 and 1980. TJ's family was part of that exodus. The Robinsons moved to Oakland in 1947. Their story is part of a chain of migration that Professor Faustina Ducross is documenting for an oral history project at San Jose State University. She's compiling interviews with first- and second-generation Californians, whose families came from Louisiana during the Great Migration. Louisiana kind of really had a strong presence. It was the largest of the state groups. Faustina explained that the migration of Louisianans to Oakland actually predates the Great Migration. During the gold rush, Oakland was only a suburb to cosmopolitan San Francisco. In 1869, Oakland began to transform into a city. That's when the Transcontinental Railroad chose Oakland to be the western terminus of the first train to cross the country. A businessman named George Pullman developed luxury sleeping cars and intentionally only hired black men to serve as sleeping car porters. Pullman porters were overworked and underpaid relative to the demands of their job. But they became part of a new middle class of black Southerners, according to Faustina. So early on with Pullman porters as a one of the first streams of people who were moving to the Bay Area, that was a well-paying job for Black men um, at that time. And so they were part of the middle class and they were able to kind of settle in places where they saw um, opportunity. And that was part of what brought kind of that early Black population to Oakland as well. Um, Some scholars have noted that it was kind of like a Pullman car colony. Um, So, you know, there were a lot of residents who had that occupation um, and it was a community. By 1880, around 2,000 Black Louisianans had settled in the Bay Area. Then, the Southern Pacific Railroad began to provide a service called the Sunset Limited, which linked New Orleans to Los Angeles and San Francisco. After World Wars I and II, the Port of Oakland became an industrial center, and that number rose to 75,000. As Faustina continued to interview more Louisianans of color who ended up in California, she found that food is a common theme throughout these stories. So one of these big themes that came out is the um, significance of food in uh, the practice of culture. When I ask participants how they stay connected to Louisiana or how its presence kind of manifests itself in California, or even to describe kind of what Creole meant to them, so many of the answers came back to the food traditions. And so many people recalled like their family recipes or uh, saying things like they wish they had their mom's recipe for this or that dish. Dishes like gumbo. Yes. So of course, if anybody out there knows, you know, anything about Louisiana, gumbo is something that kind of comes to mind automatically. And it was the case for my participants as well. That was kind of like the first thing that people mentioned. Apart from the Holy Trinity, gumbo requires a lot of ingredients that might not have been readily available in Oakland. People would import stuff from Louisiana and I heard a story of a a neighborhood woman who had kind of like a stockpile of Louisiana ingredients and she would either share it or maybe sell it. I'm not quite sure. But if they weren't able to get stuff at their local market, if they were maybe like outside of an area where there was a concentration of Louisianans, they would kind of go to this lady and pick up some ingredients. So 
Cajun and Creole cooking has remained a conduit for Louisianans living in California, and that connection became all the more vital in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina struck the Gulf Coast. After a break, we'll learn how chefs invoked the Holy Trinity of Louisiana cooking in the Bay Area after Hurricane Katrina. For eight generations, the Samuels family has distilled American whiskey. Today, Rob Samuels, the grandson of founder Bill Samuels Sr., oversees the operation of the Maker's Mark Distillery. From the soft red winter wheat they've sourced from the same local farm for over 60 years to the char in their barrels, every step in the bourbon making process is carefully crafted just like Bill Samuels Sr. did when he first created the handmade bourbon. For their excellent spirits and their support of this podcast, SFA thanks Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina and the federal levy failure, tens of thousands of New Orleanians were forced to leave the city. The largest numbers resettled in Baton Rouge, Houston, and Atlanta. About a thousand New Orleanians relocated to the Bay Area, though it's not known how many stayed or for how long. I'd like to think that a few Louisiana transplants found a connection to home in the gumbo and jambalaya that TJ served at the Gingerbread House. But the truth is, TJ's restaurant only stayed open for two years after Katrina. TJ Robinson passed away four years after that, in 2011. It was during this period that another chef from Louisiana was building a reputation in the Bay Area. My name is Brenda Buenviaje. I am the chef and owner of Brenda's French Soul Food, Brenda's Meat and Three, and Brenda's Oakland with my lovely wife, Libby Truesdell. I caught up with Brenda at her restaurant in Oakland. Of course, many of Brenda's menu staples, chicken and andouille jambalaya, gumbo and etouffee, are built on a base of the Holy Trinity. Brenda's Oakland has been faring all right during the pandemic by adapting to the takeout model. Fortunately, she's still able to connect with her regulars. How you doing, Akil? Life is good. <laughs> As Brenda and I caught up about the three main things we have in common, New Orleans, the Bay Area, and our favorite foods from both places, I asked her if she knew anything about TJ's. I, I never went in. Are you talking about the big pink house with yeah. all the stuff in the yard? Yeah, I know. I heard stories. I never made it in. Did you eat there? I did. How was it? Brenda left New Orleans in 1997, when her employer, Chef Mike Fennelly of Mike's on the Avenue, asked her to help him open a Cajun Creole Asian-influenced restaurant in San Francisco. I asked Brenda about her first impressions of the Bay Area. Probably my first two impressions was, holy crap, I have access to every food ingredient I ever fantasized about. Because at uh, Mike's in New Orleans, you know, we would get these specialty boxes every once in a while, and it was very, very exotic things that we couldn't get in New Orleans regularly. And half of it was half rotten because it had been shipped all the way from California. When the opportunity arose to open her own restaurant, she had a concept. This was in 2007, the same year TJ's gingerbread house shuttered. It was also less than two years after Hurricane Katrina. So the way I envisioned it is me playing out more the, the French side of Creole food. But at the time when we opened, it was just after Katrina. And there were a lot of displaced people. 
Like New Orleans was just getting a lot of attention. It was a scary time and people just wanted to be comforted. They wanted to be like excited, delighted, but also comforted inexpensively. And I just happened to be doing all those things at that time. It's wonderful that Louisiana's culinary diaspora provided solace here in the Bay Area. But the impact on food culture was just one tear in a giant rupture that fragmented life in New Orleans. Right after the federal flood, New Orleans photographer L. Kasimu Harris began photographing local bars and restaurants, particularly those that were Black-owned. It was just seeing just the rapid changes, and it probably goes back to Katrina for me. You know, I understand that everything must change, much like the song says, but it was just changing so rapidly, and I think that things were being erased and, and displaced, and then once they're gone, you just, you don't have a story to tell about it. Boarded up windows are a traumatic image from post-Katrina New Orleans. Now they're a national image of the COVID era. The harsh truth is that too many restaurants around the country have not or will not survive the pandemic. With that upheaval comes a displacement of cooks and hospitality workers. When the quarantine started, Lee Wright followed up with several of the New Orleanians that she had interviewed for her book about the tourist economy. Some had found themselves reassessing their place in a precarious industry. From what I've seen through firsthand experience and then through other people's stories working in the service industry is, you know, you come here and you may or may not have dreams of, you know, working on art or singing or doing something and you kind of sink down into the service industry and either you're front of house and the money's pretty good, so it's pretty easy to stay, or you're back of house and you just get lost in that culture a little bit. But a lot of people now kind of had that space and that break to sit and be like, oh, yeah, well, like what am I doing in New Orleans? Many of Lee's contacts are adapting and reinventing their careers. I know for a lot of bartenders, servers, you know, again, they've started to think about going back to school. They've started to consider taking out loans, which is also a very scary thing to think about. We don't really know where life is headed. With a growing concern about other endangered Black-owned bars and restaurants, Kasimu has doubled down on his efforts to document these places since the pandemic began. We need these places uh, maintained and preserved, much like we do these historic buildings much like Louis Armstrong's childhood cornet. You know, these places are just that important. These businesses hold food traditions, like the Holy Trinity, but they're also a medium through which Louisianans express intangibles, like identity and belonging. Here's Faustina Ducross once more. This is the way that people connected with being from Louisiana or New Orleans or whatever hometown. When we think of the kind of significance of a place it really fuels identity in some of the ways that that we talk about who we are and you know food as as we've been talking about is is really much tied to you know specific places whether the turning point louisianans face is a great migration a federal flood or a global pandemic louisiana cooking has and will continue to be an anchor wherever it drops. As I was packing up my recording equipment at Brenda's, someone stepped up to the counter wearing a blue mask and ordered the chicken etouffee. As for me, 
I ordered the crawfish beignets, something I hadn't tasted since the last New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. If I crave them again before I make it back to New Orleans, now I know where to go. Gravy was produced by Sarah Holtz. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Fact-checking thanks go to Natalie Dupree Graduate Fellows Bethany Fitz and Catherine Jesse. Managing Editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Laster runs this ship. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to engage with our oral history collection. Drink a hurricane on Bourbon Street, eat Boudin from Best Stop. Challenge yourself with Leah Chase's recipe for gumbo zerb. And while you're there, consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. In other words, just like the gumbo is green, so is your money and we need it. (laughs) I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.